Hi, I'm Scott Robinson, director of the REIT Center at NYU Shack Institute of Real Estate. I'm fortunate to be co-hosting our fall REIT leadership series with my friend and industry colleague, Robin Panofka. Robin co-chairs Wachtell Lipton's real estate and REIT M&A practice with Adam Emmerich, both of whom have long supported the Shack Institute, notably as conference chairs of our annual REIT symposium held every spring in New York City. This REIT leadership series was designed to bring our students and numerous stakeholders into a direct conversation with some of the folks shaping our industry. Today's conversation is with Bill Lenahan, President and CEO of Four Corners Property Trust. Four Corners trades on the NICE under the ticker FCPT. FCPT is primarily engaged in the acquisition and ownership of net lease restaurant and retail properties. Bill has generously prepared a comprehensive presentation for our students to discuss his views on the current economic climate, what he's learned from past market downturns, and to provide career advice for people launching their careers today. I also want to thank the many NYU Shack students who participated in this series, including today's co-host, Alexandra Von Grisham. I hope you find these conversations and the related research memos informative, and I look forward to exploring these topics further with all of you in the coming months. Uh, it's my honor to uh, speak today with, with Bill Lenahan, CEO of Four Corners Property Trust. I'm joined by Alexandra Von Gersham, who is one of our Hirsch Fellows this semester. Um, Bill has prepared a, a, a very robust presentation. I uh, appreciate your time in pulling us together. I think there's some great information here for our students. And, and look, you have a, a terrific career. Uh, quite varied uh, and obviously very successful. I've been working very hard uh, in the past seven years uh, since Four Corners was spun out of Darden, uh, having doubled the size of that portfolio. Um, and so I think uh, your market experience and, and how you are treating uh, the current economic environment would be uh, very interesting to our students. So I'm going to hand it over to you and I'll pop open the presentation. Great. Thank you very much, Scott and Alexandra. Um, the idea here is because there's such an interesting market um, dynamic right now, I thought it would be helpful to put together some slides to talk about where the real estate market is, where the macro environment is, and to share my experience uh, from the financial crisis, the um, 07 to sort of 2010-11 period. But, but first off, very grateful to be here. Um, you know, terrific program, very well respected in the real estate industry. Uh, at NYU. Uh, I've been involved in a couple of uh, dinners uh, that uh, Wachtell and Shaq uh, do every year, and uh, it's always a, a terrific time. So it's, a, it's really, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. So as Scott mentioned, my background is uh, I did a couple of years of investment banking. I spent 10 years at a, a large um, global multi-strategy hedge fund named Farallon Capital in San Francisco. There I bought uh, securities and buildings. Uh, it was a, a very interesting mix. And um, since then I've been on the board uh, of a number of uh, public companies. Granite uh, was a, a company I ran in Canada. I joined the board of Gramercy Property Trust, which uh, Wachtell and Robin uh, sold, helped us sell to Blackstone. Um, I joined, uh, as Scott mentioned, the board of Darden uh, about eight years ago, and I'm on the board of Macy's, uh, which if you are thinking about holiday shopping, I would encourage you to shop at Macy's and Bloomingdale's. <laughs> so the next slide, uh, I'm uh, 46 years old. I live in Mill Valley, California. I have three wonderful daughters. Uh, I married uh, my uh, wonderful wife uh, about 17 years ago. So, so I want to start with what, what's my job, okay? Um, what is it that I do every day? And I think 
I've listed out three things here. The third is what you'll find uh, very often uh, as the punchline CEOs say, I'm here to allocate capital. But I would make the argument that without people and without access to capital, it's very difficult uh, to in fact allocate capital, especially in a REIT format where we must distribute most of our uh, profits uh, in, in the form of dividends. So if you think about uh, a non-REIT, most non-REITs will generate the amount of capital that the company has as a market cap in roughly seven to 10 years. So if a CEO is going to be around for that period of time, which is about, about right, they're going to allocate the entirety uh, of the market cap they started with day one over their tenure. REITs are a little different. We, we must raise capital uh, uh, voraciously in order to grow. But uh, culture is critically important, respecting the board is critically important, uh, and having a good relationship with shareholders is critically important, uh, especially now that index ownership is roughly half the universe of REITs. Okay, next slide. This may seem a bit sophomoric, um, but I think there's actually a lot of wisdom in this slide. Um, REITs are pretty simple. Uh, what I do is pretty simple. We buy buildings. Uh, we have a small amount of financial assets and interest rate hedges, and we have 30 people at the company, uh, which is not very many for a company that's worth uh, $3 billion. Our liabilities are very simple. Um, they're financial debt, and you can basically add up what you think the buildings are worth, plus or minus a little bit for the people, less the debt, and you get what the company's worth. That's very different than a C-Corp. Uh, that's very different than a company that its product might catch on in another market, or it may uh, have functional obsolescence in its equipment. Uh, its liabilities are much more complex. It usually is, has lots of team members uh, per market cap. Uh, there are things like tax rates, loss carry forwards, et cetera. So valuing a C-Corp is much more complicated. And I think that that's a, a really important consideration because investing is not like Olympic diving. You, you don't get a degree of difficulty adjustment at the end. So keeping it uh, with a simple structure really allows you to have um, a higher level of confidence in my view that how you're thinking about a company, how you're valuing it is correct. So I'm gonna talk very briefly about the company that I run. Um, there's a quote here from Jamie Diamond that uh, is my sort of business motto. Mm -hmm. um, his chairman letters, by the way, are superb. Uh, I think everyone should be reading his chairman letters, Berkshire's chairman letters, and probably Vornado's uh, chairman's letters, amongst others. But that's a terrific way to hear and learn about business um, uh, from, from the people calling the shots. So we started uh, as a activist campaign, an uh, activist fund in New York called Starboard Value, started a campaign. Um, they owned half a billion dollars worth of Darden stock, and they um, got Darden uh, to um, engage. They weren't satisfied with the level of progress, and they ran an entire new slate in October 2014. That's the first time, to my knowledge, that's ever been done. The entirety of Darden's board was replaced, and I was part of Starboard's a slate and I was sort of the, the real estate person. Uh, it was an incredibly intense period. Um, uh, one of the most interesting and um, productive uh, times in my professional career. But we, we stepped in with an entirely new slate. So ability to um, take our views and, and, and um, 
you know, bring action to bear. So they tasked me with uh, chairing the um, finance uh, committee there and coming up with a plan uh, for uh, the, the real estate that Darden owned. Okay. And what that meant was we spun off uh, 418 properties. We uh, sold at Darden 64 individual properties and then the headquarters building. Uh, but what was created uh, was, a, was a, a New York Stock Exchange traded company for, called Four Corners Property Trust. And it's really interesting to think, we knew we had to start with Darden properties, but everything else was open for decision. How much rent there was, was there going to be? How long would the leases be? Um, would the rents grow? Uh, would Darden have any outs under the lease? Um, what the company would be named, where it would be based, what its culture would be, how much debt it would carry, what its dividend policy would be, its entire board, uh, who was, uh, who was, who else besides me was going to work there. Um, so we had a lot of decisions to make, and it really was a, a, a very strong sense of we need to get this right. Um, this is a very unique opportunity. Uh, eyes are on us, um, and. Uh, really, the, the the interesting thing is having one tenant is a big no-no in the REIT space generally. So the idea was if we could get everything else right, governance, capital structure, you know, strategy, would we get a uh, sufficient multiple to grow? And we did. Um, so a couple stats on the company. Um, we went through COVID uh, with, with uh, really... Uh, very little um, impact on our income statement. Um, uh, we were collecting 99.8% of the rents by July. Um, and uh, governance, we have a very high governance score. Um, uh, I view that as well-trodden path of how to get a high score, but we're top decile, okay? So this is what we've done over the last couple of years. We started off with $94 million worth of rent. And um, as Scott mentioned it, we've uh, basically doubled it. These numbers are as, as of June, which is our last public filing. Um, but we've added uh, a number of different properties and in the last couple of years been buying non-restaurant properties as well. Um, I thought one thing that would be really interesting for students to see is how we do this. And I think that we've actually been a leader in uh, adopting technology um, we bought a building every 2.1 business days last year, uh, and we do, we do it very um, uh, solidly. Like we, we do the due diligence. We have read the environmental reports. We understand the condition of the property. We've run title, uh, et cetera. And so that requires an awful lot of uh, collaboration, uh, seeking board approval, thinking through whether the investment's sensible. And we use a lot of technology to do that. This is a product called DealPath, which we use to store all the information and process manage. So if you think about, if you're gonna buy a building every two days, you're gonna have 50, 100 properties in your pipeline at any one time, uh, as well as probably two or three times that of, of properties you're assessing. That requires a lot of coordination around letters of intent, purchase and sale agreements, uh, due diligence work, wiring money for close, checking settlement statements, closing, press releasing, et cetera. Okay. And this program allows us to keep all of the information in uh, one place and get really detailed uh, down to, um, you know, the, 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 the microscopic level at the property. It also allows us, if you go to the next page, to zoom out 
Uh, this is a map of our, our portfolio. Um, as a former investment banker, every presentation has to have a map. Um, that's, the, <laughs> that's the one thing they teach you. I'm not sure what you would um, glean from this map um, unless you're from Billings, Montana, uh, where we do own the Olive Garden. Okay. Well, maybe um, I could jump in here just sure. you know, real quick. Um, we can obviously get into what the acquisition climate looks like and the challenges around valuation when there's a lot of uh, capital markets volatility. Um, but should we glean anything from this map with respect to population growth and, and consumer demand? Yeah. Um, it's interesting if you went on a brokerage website or you went on LoopNet uh, and you, you know, they're trying to get you to zoom down to a specific market. But if you just said search all restaurants, you know, it would run for a while and it would pop back the thousands and thousands of restaurants that are for sale in America. And it would look something like this map, right? There aren't, um, you know, there's not a lot of people in Nevada, ex Las Vegas, right? Right. Uh, there's, you know, so this is what it would look like. Um, I would say our properties tend to be located in denser retail nodes, by which I mean adjacent to a mall, adjacent to a Home Depot, adjacent to a, uh, a grocery and uh, strip center. Uh, they're not located in urban markets. Uh, that had enormous implications during COVID, Scott, right? Um, we, want, we have a thousand buildings. We don't have a single elevator. That had enormous implications. Not a stat I would have followed or thought of before. Uh, we don't, every single one of our properties, the tenant can access the front door directly. They don't have to be let in to a perimeter uh, so they can get to their, their space. Um, I would also say, interestingly, um, we have a portfolio that's diverse by, by political affiliation of the geography, which again, I wouldn't have thought of as a, as a vector of diversity to think about, but it, it played a big role in having um, stores more open than not during COVID. Our, our two biggest, biggest states are Texas and Florida, uh, and they were quite a bit more open than where we are here in Mill Valley, uh, which was much, much more um, uh, COVID conservative or you know, locked down, however you want to um, say, uh, than other parts of the country. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so this is that was sort of a speed round to get to what I really want to talk about, which is what the heck's going on out there. Um, and uh, there are exceptional um, amounts of market volatility. Things are changing quickly. It is very reminiscent of the financial crisis. Um, very more reminiscent to the financial crisis than COVID, but there are some some learnings there. We're going to talk very quickly about what's going on. Trust me, it's it's not um, positive, uh, but I would really think the takeaway here is in this bottom quote, um, which I'll just pause for a moment for you to read. Uh, and Scott, I'm sure you felt this way in your career. I joined uh, a bank right after the, uh, uh, the financial markets in Asia were substantially disrupted. Uh, recruiting was down. Uh, people felt very lucky to get a job. Um, and then the internet bubble took off. So in my uh, 80 person analyst class at a bank, um, it was only me and Brian <laughs> who, were, who made it two years. Everyone else left and went to a tech company. Uh, but starting after a recession, 
um, was was a real positive uh, uh, event. And I think while it may be more challenging to get a job now upon graduation, um, really starting at low valuations is is a really positive thing. So uh, we're going to talk about some things that are going wrong in the financial markets uh, or, or you know seas of, of red. Uh, but I think actually the takeaway here is really, really positive. Um, I remember thinking my, my father was an investor and he would tell me stories when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, I'll never see cheap like he saw it. <laughs> and um, the reality is I've had a couple opportunities in my career already to see things um, very dislocated and bargains to be had. Yeah, okay. you know, it's funny. I uh, I got into the REIT space in the late 90s and I felt, oh, I've missed the big boom of REITs. But I know you've got a slide in here later really talks about the the proliferation of, of non-traditional property types. And so, yeah, I try to communicate to my students all the time that, you know, out of periods of disruption come significant periods of growth and expansion, right? So. Yep. And the only thing that's constant is change, right? I, I gave a presentation to, similar presentation to this to the, uh, to Goldman Sachs's real estate department. And I was joking with them that in 1999, Scott, uh, which is when I graduated uh, from school too. In 1999, if 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 the Goldman Sachs analyst class was broken down by ranking, and the top ranking analysts could choose the subsector within REITs, uh, no question about it, that top ranking analyst would have chosen malls. <laughs> the number two rated analyst would have chosen CBD office. Right. Right. And you know if you were lucky enough to get a job at Goldman, but unfortunately you were the, the least ranked analyst there. You probably could have taken industrial, manufactured housing, net lease, uh, self-storage, other, and said, well, I'll take all of those if that's okay. And the, the person who had them all would, would, would say, fine, you know, you, you take those, <laughs> right? But I'll show later that the growth of our industry really has come from uh, those other sectors. But, but back to the macro. So page 15, so 80% of CEOs think we're in a recession or will be in one shortly. Globally, uh, central banks are raising rates, excluding Japan. Um, a, a period of free money is over. You're seeing trends that uh, were COVID-induced reverse in many cases, right? So uh, sales of athleisure clothing, uh, significantly reduced. But some things have proven sticky. Uh, people aren't going back to the office the same way that executives would have predicted. Um, U.S. dollar strengthening is, is an interesting one. Not much impact on my life. You know, I, I, I'm pretty domestic in my business orientation. We don't own buildings overseas. But I would reflect that 25% of S&P earnings come from other countries. And they were repatriating those dollars and getting far less in exchange um, if you look at it. Um, I think U.S. residential real estate is about to go into significant decline, and, and I welcome that, frankly, because uh, you think about where we're based in Northern California, housing is extraordinarily expensive. It is the biggest impediment that I have to building a team mm -hmm. uh, that my very successful uh, team members uh, are challenged to, to buy houses. Uh, while we feel like we're uh, you know, experiencing a lot of um, volatility in the real estate space. I assure you uh, it's far greater in the venture space. Uh, and one of the things that I'm trying to track down is, is 
you know, the peak of the number of unicorn tech companies uh, has really um, slid substantially. Um, Fed is increasing regulatory scrutiny. Uh, I think very often today, if the Federal Reserve was on my Zoom calls, would they be happy or would they say these companies still aren't getting it? Um, my guess is they would be happy. They're hearing things like banks retrench and extending credit. They're hearing things like um, people being more cautious in making acquisitions, uh, sellers being more anxious that a deal will close. Um, and then I think that the war in Ukraine, and we'll have some stats in here that, that, that talk about sort of before and after, obviously massive humani humanitarian um, uh, uh, problem uh, and, and um, very significant economic impacts. But the amount that Europe uh, and especially German um, industrial production relies on natural gas from Russia is substantial. And so uh, I think whatever is happening in, in North America, what's happening in Europe is far worse. So one of the ways, how did we get here? Um, this is um, debt to GDP over time, and you'll see it increase substantially and then very substantially during uh, COVID and the stimulus. Um, this is both government debt uh, and um, residential mortgages and corporate debt, but really it's government um, spending financed with uh, issuing government bonds. And uh, it's interesting, Scott, you know, was it a year or two years ago, uh, folks were speculating that this didn't matter, that this was a new paradigm. You know, the, the old saying, most dangerous words are this time it's different. Uh, it's turned out not to be different. And as we have significantly more debt, it is flowing through to inflation. So let's just very quickly look at all the different indices. Uh, and this is a week old, but it's about, right, um, substantial declines. Um, and honestly, this is pretty rational. Um, we had a pretty frothy environment there. Folks were talking uh, about venture investing as being, uh, you know, a no-brainer, um, make, make your venture investors fa investments faster. Uh, people were looking up to folks that were investing in a pretty um, uh, immature way, I would say. Uh, we focus on um, public uh, valuations because they're they're much more transparent. But uh, in fact, I would argue that private market um, valuation change is probably greater because of more asset level financing or the need for future funding uh, uh, a la venture capital. Okay. Um, so seeing a lot more of, of this person uh, recently, this is um, uh, Paul Volcker who passed away recently, but uh, he is the, the former um, Federal Reserve Chairman who uh, tamed inflation in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when as a kid, I can remember you could buy Massachusetts municipal bonds that yielded 17%. <laughs> um, I was four or five years old, so I, I didn't make that investment, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, amazing tax-free uh, government obligations at, at that type of yield. Um, you can see here on the top left that inflation seems to have, um, you know, made the turn domestically. That's probably not the case for Europe, um, but it is the case here. Uh, and Chairman Powell literally um, is a, you know, history politics major 
uh, is what he studied at Princeton. Uh, I think he's looking at uh, Volcker uh, as a paradigm, someone who was very much um, vilified uh, when he was uh, chairman and auto loans were 17% and mortgages were 15%, that sort of thing, but now uh, is viewed uh, very favorably by history. Uh, so I think Powell has that in mind. Um, hey, Bill, on, on this point, uh, a lot of the conversation in our classrooms stem around um, investor appetite for real estate and, and gold, particularly during inflationary times. And on the one hand, it's it's tough to see that uh, play through today. If I look at what the the read index is doing and what a lot, number of reads are for how they're performing, but maybe we should be thinking about housing prices as as the, that proxy for real estate. But are you seeing any any linkage between what used to be uh, inflation and and real estate and or gold uh, in, in today? So um, I, I I know very little about gold. Um, um, I know enough about cryptocurrencies to avoid them. Uh, <laughs> so that, but uh, what I would say about inflation in real estate is it's not a single variable. So it, inflation is bad for us because our borrowing costs are higher. It's bad for us because we're investing over a risk-free rate. So if the risk-free rate goes up and our investment yields don't, our spread is lower. Um, it's good for us because to reconstruct our buildings probably would cost 40% more than pre-COVID. So that means our tenants are much more likely to stay. If our tenants are much more likely to stay, I don't need to build out a property management apparatus to the same extent. Right. But for my team members, they have expectations of more compensation because inflation is high. So, so there's, I hope, hopefully, I put a couple things in the numerator, a couple things in the denominator of what you need to think about when you think about real estate. Yeah. Um, but, and we'll talk about this in a bit. There's a terrific article that Warren Buffett wrote many years ago called um, Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. Um, inflation and the deterioration of the dollar uh, is, is really um, substantial. And if you want a real life way of, of thinking about this, take some something you're interested in, some sport, uh, and go find on eBay or in the library, go find uh, magazines related to that sport that are 20 years old, 30 years old. And as you flip through it, you will be shocked that, you know, the, the highest end surfboard in 1980 <laughs> wouldn't buy that price wouldn't buy you a kid's version today. Right. Right. Um, you know, you'll see uh, advertisements for real estate 20, 30 years ago, wouldn't buy you the parking space today. Uh, so inflation has been a factor for a long time, will continue to be a factor. My industry has long-term leases with contractual rent growth. So we don't get to reset to inflation like an apartment building might or a, a hotel does every night. On the other hand, we don't have to put CapEx into our buildings. So I bet you right now there are office buildings that are being remodeled for tenants where the tenant improvement is what it costs to build the office building originally. Uh, 
Sure. So we don't have that dynamic. Yeah, um, maybe for the next slide, just to talk briefly, this is a little bit of a difficult to read slide, but suffice it to say, the financial markets are really in a difficult place. Um, volatility is very substantial, not the same as the GFC, um, but in that ballpark for sure. Uh, and so, you know, pretty concerning. And coming off of a, a very, very uh, aggressive financial markets a year ago. And so you see here, pricing has gapped. And so if you look at real estate, what used to be, you know, 200 basis points, uh, what used to be, you know, 100 basis points over is now 200 basis points over. And it's over obviously a higher tenure. Uh, and the yields on uh, lower rated credit is very substantial. The, the second point here is you may think as a real estate person that, you already have the debt that you need, it's not a problem, but your tenants uh, are likely repricing their liabilities at a much higher rate. Okay, so so I, what was it like in the financial crisis? Let's look at these quotes for a second and I'll give you just to frame it up. I was in the middle of my early career, okay? By which I mean, I had graduated from college, I had done some banking, acquired some skills, went to a hedge fund, uh, had been there for, six years or so, uh, we made some investments that I had um, a significant involvement in, uh, certainly not unilateral, but made, made some significant investments. And then all of a sudden, the market came crashing down. Um, and when I say all of a sudden, um, I'll, I'll talk about one deal, which was a, we bought a very large 57,000 uh, site manufactured housing uh, community company. And the loan on that was a $1.575 billion loan uh, that was the last loan to close during the financial crisis. So Merrill Lynch funded that $1.6 billion loan into probably a $400 million loss. And we were buying back that debt at 50 cents on the dollar within a year. Okay, so um, really right at the end, uh, we also bought a very big mall company with Simon. Uh, both of those investments turned out, turned out to be quite good, by the way. Uh, but uh, in 07, 08, 09, it didn't feel that way at all. And it was very stressful. Go to the next slide. So what does really stressful look like? Um, well, I lost 70 pounds. <laughs> it was really stressful. Uh, you know, uh, we were, I was very concerned. Our investors were big universities, they were uh, hospital systems, they were entrepreneurs who were giving money to cancer research, and it felt like we had done a, a bad deal, uh, but they worked out well. Uh, but it took a lot of um, action and uh, focus to recover our equity and then ultimately make a pretty good return. Um, so, so, you know, most of the folks in the audience here weren't around for the financial crisis. Let me talk a little bit about what the bad deals looked like. And I'm going to just break them down into to three components, but I would say, Scott, it's probably more nuanced than this, simply because we just didn't do much development at Fairlawn. So I don't have the experience of being mid-financial crisis with a building that's half out of the ground. Um, other people do. Um, there's some great materials that Trammell Crow put together in the early 90s around what happens when development deals go bad. And if anyone would like that, I'd be glad to distribute it. But what were the bad deals? Uh, one was uh, you overpaid and, and everyone overpaid. They're, they're, the market uh, adjusted so substantially that really no 
uh, bargain price that you thought you were getting uh, would be uh, still in the money uh, in you know 08, 09. Everything bought 05, 06, 07 looked like you overpaid 08, 09, 2010. <coughs> in some cases, you overpaid, but you had long-term debt, five, seven-year debt. The market for debt um, went away. I think 07 to 08, CNBS declined 96%. Um, but if you had five years, it looked bad for a couple of years. If you worked the assets really hard, leased, redeveloped, uh, et cetera, the value of the properties went up. Uh, and in years four and five, you could refinance and you got pretty good returns. That was exactly what the two big deals I mentioned uh, had. The second um, was deals where you borrowed very short term. Maybe your lender was Lehman Brothers. Um, maybe your lender was a foreign bank that exited the US. You didn't want to put um, property financing in place. You just felt if I could you know, find one tenant, if I could redo the lobby, if I could do this, I'll, I'll make the property worth so much more and then I'll put full-time financing on it. Well, the music stopped. And on those deals, either you had to buy back the debt at 50 cents on the dollar or less, or you handed back the keys. And then the third um, might not be something that people have thought about, but if you think about the height of a, of a market, what happens is the normal way that you would invest money has been basically crowded out because there's so many people investing money. Uh, and so what happens is you go and you move on to making investments that in a normal period, you just wouldn't have considered. Um, and so I think every uh, firm, Farallon actually to a pretty minimal extent, but every firm in 2008, 2009 had investments where you just looked at it and said, why did we do that in the first place? I just don't understand whether it was a, a property type that you had no experience in or a deal that was way too small or way too large for the amount of capital that you had. Um, deals that were in faraway places, deals were with partners that you you knew no, almost nothing about, et cetera. Okay, so, so what does it mean when I say details really matter? Well, I mentioned this mobile home park loan and Merrill Lynch funding into a huge loss. That was because we had one sentence in a loan agreement. Okay, that one sentence meant Merrill Lynch had to fund had that sentence not been there, they wouldn't have had to fund and we would have had to buy the company for $2.1 billion all cash. It would have been disastrous. So what happened, all sorts of details really mattering all at once. Um, you know, and the magnitude of the decisions were massive, right? So pre-financial crisis, you were negotiating with a lender whether your loan was going to be at 4% or 4.2%. And you're, you're vigorously negotiating this small difference. A year later, either you were going to buy back their debt at 50 cents on the dollar, or you were going to mail them the keys and lose all your money. Okay. Um, before the crisis, your operating partner, you were trying to figure out um, whether the meetings were going to happen uh, um, once a week or twice a week, whether they're going to be in person. You know, a year later, you couldn't find your operating partner. They weren't returning calls. They were gone. Um, so really, and that was like, same thing with COVID, right? Pre-COVID, what was on my mind? We had, you know, one empty building in our portfolio. Gosh darn Dairy Queen in Oklahoma City. Could we find a new tenant for it? And then literally a week later, every single tenant's calling and saying, I don't think I should have to pay rent. 
Okay. You know, we were trying to make a decision about do we hire this one person or that person pre COVID, post COVID. I was running, you know, two year no revenue scenarios, right? Massive changes in what you had to think about. It turned out not to be a big deal at all, ultimately. But um, I think, you know, if you learn nothing from this class, uh, second to last bullet point, if you're investing money, it's your job to determine how much debt you use. Um, just as like if you're buying a house, it's your job to determine how much debt you use. Uh, do not let someone else determine that for you. Uh, I got a quote on the previous page about computers. Uh, <laughs> Excel <laughs> can make you make really dumb decisions. It's a, it's a computer program, okay? Treat it as such. Uh, it can also, lack of Excel can make, mean you make really bad decisions. 